Lord, we come to you now asking that you would help us to place ourselves under your word, to be teachable, to be molded by your Holy Spirit as the word goes forward. And Lord, that we will be honest with you and what you reveal to us today. And Lord, would you conform us to be more and more like your son? Would you help us, Lord, to see the struggles that we face and the challenges that are against us and what you call us to? And Lord, help me simply to be your mouthpiece, to faithfully proclaim your truth for your glory, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I wonder, maybe you have received this email over the past couple of years. It goes something like this. Dear Mr. Phillips, we're glad to inform you that your automatic renewal for your Norton LifeLock subscription has been processed. This is your invoice in the amount of $199 for one year of continued Norton LifeLock protection. Make sure to print or save a copy for your records, which you will find below or in your registered account. And if you want to cancel this order, kindly contact customer service within 24 hours at the following link, support at norton-lifelock.com. Thank you for your cooperation. We're happy to help you sincerely, the Norton Antivirus team. Now, this is just one example that I actually pulled from an email of the many subscription renewal scams that are floating around the internet that sound very real. And actually, they're quite shocking because it's their goal to lure you into saying something like this. Hey, what's going on here? I didn't need to renew my Norton LifeLock subscription because I don't have one. And so in a panic, they want you to click the link. And in clicking the link, a whole world opens up with some kind of a phishing virus that can take your information, can even tap into your finances depending on how things are protected on your computer. I'm not saying that to panic you. But this is the subscription renewal scam. But friends, unlike these evil people who use a renewal as a way to scam you out of money, when God's word speaks of renewal, it is always for your good. Here are just a few examples from the Bible. Let me just highlight a few verses. King David in his psalm, his psalm of of, of repentance says in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. There was a lot to be renewed. Isaiah, in his encouragement to Israel, says this, but they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Isaiah 40, 31. The Apostle Paul instructs us in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that 
by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. But that renewal is critical. He instructs again, but now in Titus, more focusing on our salvation. And this is Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of, uh, 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 sorry, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Friends, what is renewal? Well, a dictionary definition will sound something like this. To make new, to restore the freshness, the life, or the quality of something. To make spiritually new. When the Bible speaks of renewal, it sometimes refers to physical renewal, the rest that our bodies need to continue functioning at their best. This is part of the reason why God instituted a day of rest, a Sabbath. This is why even land gets rest so that it can be renewed. But the scriptures also talk about the need for spiritual renewal. And spiritual renewal is a con continual process in the life of a believer. The process of struggling with your sin or challenge or trials, but by God's grace being restored in your relationship and coming to grow and grow in grace by degrees over time. And friends, it's worth us knowing that the goal of the leadership of this church is not some kind of an instantaneous, radical change among the people. It is the steady, daily, week in, week out, time under the Word of God, time allowing the Word of God to shape our thoughts, to shape our hearts, and to move us and mold us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. There will be times of wonderful renewal. But our whole sanctification process is a process of that renewal. So yes, we have been radically changed by Christ and his gospel, but throughout our lives, there are times when renewal is necessary. Sometimes there are big issues or challenges that have caused some difficulty in our lives, maybe brought out sin. Other times, there are nuances of sin that just reside in our heart or a lack of obedience or simply a lack of faith in the Lord. And God wants to bring renewal to us. But through them all, friends, God doesn't abandon us. He initiates renewal in our lives. He initiates renewal in our lives. Let me just give you a few examples of maybe what you're experiencing. When we're discouraged, we need renewal to, to get us up and back to what God has called us to. When we're exhausted or overwhelmed, there's problems on, on every side. We need renewal to find, you know, to be able to think properly, to think clearly, and to figure out what is a priority. When we're disciplined and we're facing or living through the consequences of our sin, we need renewal to learn the lessons we need to and to pick up the pieces so that we can start afresh or continue that walk with God. That's what David had to do. And we're apathetic because we've drifted into living our lives in comfort according to what we want to do. 
We need renewal to motivate us to move back into this walk with Christ. When we are enslaved or entangled with sin, we need renewal to see our bondage for what it really is and seek the kind of freedom that only comes through Christ. When we're comfortable, we need renewal to shake our priorities to conform us to God and his will. And friends, this is where we find Israel in this text. Living out God's discipline in Babylon. They weren't there by choice. Well, I guess you could say they were there by choice. They were there by their choice of rebellion and disobedience, and God brings judgment, and the Babylonians come, and they take them into exile. But now we're 70 years or so later, and it's God by his providence who begins this process of Israel's renewal. So our text is about renewal, friends. And in fact, the whole book of Exodus is really about this renewal, this ongoing renewal to get Israel back to where they need to be. So this morning, I want us to see that what the people of Israel needed and what we need are three dynamics of God's providence that bring renewal. Three dynamics, three aspects of God's providence that bring renewal. Now, friends, the people of Israel are not going back to Jerusalem because they're so smart, because they're so powerful, because they're so successful. No, it is God who is at work. He is the one who brings renewal to them to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, and to restore or rekindle true worship in the temple. So let's take these one at a time. The first one I'm saying is this. This is the dynamic that we need. This is the dynamic that they needed. The scriptures that guide us. Now I want you to notice as we look at the first few verses of this passage, the emphasis here is on the word of the Lord, right? In the first year of King, uh, uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. It would not be improper for us to say that the proclamation of Cyrus is what changed the course of the events of history. But what Ezra wants us to see is that the proclamation of Cyrus is the mighty hand of God at work through his word. Yes, Cyrus makes a decree, but behind that is God's word moving history. Jeremiah the prophet said that Israel would be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. But after 70 years, Babylon would fall. Who could have imagined that mighty Babylon, a mighty power in that region of the world, that the empire would end, that the king would be defeated, and that Cyrus, the king of Persia, would be the conqueror. And that in conquering Babylon, he would usher in a decree to send the people of Israel back to their homeland. And give them the resources to rebuild the temple. 
But friends, God has already spoken through his prophet, Jeremiah, yes, but also through his prophet, Isaiah. So turning your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, in particular, we're going to look at chapter 44 and chapter 45, and understand that the book of Isaiah is written about 140 years prior to these events. Okay? Now, skeptics will try and find some way to twist the dates and all that kind of stuff, but Isaiah wasn't living. He had died. He had written his prophecy many years prior to these events. Isaiah chapter 44. And I'm just going to say a little a brief little statement from verse 24, and then I want you to focus on verse 28. Here's how it begins. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens. You'll catch that in a little bit. Look at verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying, O Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now, it's kind of a strange language to us, because when you see something like God speaking about someone as a shepherd, you're thinking automatically, of, well, isn't the Lord the shepherd? Isn't that Jesus that's being spoken of? Well, no, this is simply God speaking through the prophet, saying, I have chosen Cyrus to be my agent, my chosen vessel to fulfill my purposes. Now go to chapter 45, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6. And again, hear this prophecy. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places, God says. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you, remember he's speaking here to Cyrus, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord. And there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? You see how God is clearly saying, Cyrus, you don't realize it, but I am the one who is going before you so that my children, Israel, are taken care of. God's word through the prophet Isaiah is being fulfilled in Cyrus and paving the way for Israel's return to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. But now I want you to notice the proclamation of Cyrus. We're going to get specific now into it. If you remember, the Assyrians, their habit was to conquer people and then intermingle them with other people from other places and really just kind of then filter them out as a people group. And then the Babylonians, if you remember, their goal was to enculture the people that were captivated 
or captive by them. And this is what the pressure that was on the Israelites, but they didn't give in. The Persians under Cyrus sought to maximize their power by harnessing the gods of the conquered nations. Rather than have them fighting against you, let's have these gods all you know, fighting for us, so to speak. So Cyrus makes this proclamation, and we have it recorded here in verses 2 through 4. And notice, just let's take some time to read it together. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of who? The God of heaven. Not just Israel's God, not just Jerusalem's God, but this is the God of heaven. I told you to kind of note here in Isaiah 44, verse 24, where it says, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens. The emphasis here is that there's something far more unique about Israel's God. He's the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So this is number one, the God of heaven has given me this charge. You could just summarize it there. It's the first thing it says. Secondly, verse three, whoever is among you of all his people, may, uh, may his God be with you. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So you, no, the God of heaven has sent me. And now I'm giving you freedom to go back. Whoever wants to go can go. And then the third thing, this is verse 4, and let each survivor, that word survivor actually is the word, um, it's the word remnant, so we get that from, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So there's the God of heaven has sent me, has given me this charge, you can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, but you will also be provided with the resources you need to go back and to do the work, in particular, restore the temple. Now, friends, how did Cyrus know to make such a specific proclamation to the Jews? How does he know about Yahweh, the God of heaven? How does he know about the house of the Lord? How does he know about gold and silver and beasts that are needed in the project. Well, the text doesn't say, doesn't say it directly, but Cyrus must have had a basic understanding of Israel's history and the once magnificent temple in Jerusalem. But friends, have you ever heard about a man by the name of Daniel? And friends, see, this is where the word of God starts to go beep, coming together in places, just making some sense. Do you remember that he, along with many other young men, learned men, were taken captive by the Babylonians back to Babylon? And do you remember how Daniel, along with three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, stood with Jesus in the fiery furnace and would not uh, bow down to the desire of Darius at that point in time? And do you remember that on the very night that Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, lifted up his heart against the God of heaven and dishonored the God of Israel by drinking from the temple vessels in celebration to other gods, that God spoke through Daniel to Belshazzar that his mighty Babylonian kingdom would end, and that very night 
Cyrus, also known as Darius, it's a title, would enter Babylon and kill Belshazzar. My point in reminding you of this is that God was already speaking his word through Daniel when Cyrus arrives in Babylon. <laughs> Don't you think it makes sense that 70-year-old Daniel, as well as other Jewish leaders, when Cyrus overtakes the realm, they would have informed Cyrus of what happened to Belshazzar and why it happened from a prophetic perspective, as well as communicate to him the prophecies about him in both Jeremiah and in Isaiah. Now, friends, God speaks to us through his word. He's breathed it out over 1,500 years using about 40 different authors. He's given us his Holy Spirit to illuminate his scriptures so that we can have understanding and so we can live out what he is calling us to. But friends, have you drifted? Are you discouraged? Are you overwhelmed? Are you exhausted? If that is true, begin your renewal by opening the Scriptures. Friends, it's not a Sunday school answer when someone comes to you and says, I'm not sure what to do, to say, have you been reading the Word? Because the, God uses the very means that he's breathed out as a mechanism to communicate to your heart the things that you need. But if you set it aside, you're setting aside counsel. Right? It's like me putting an Ikea project together without the instructions. It's not going to look like the picture at all. And there's going to be lots of things left over at the end. God's given you his word. The problem is he doesn't just want you to read it every once in a while, kind of like theoretically. The point here is to commune with him through the word as if this is something you're doing regularly and daily and you're meditating on and he's using it to strengthen and to grow you. So are you enslaved? Are you apathetic? Are you being disciplined by God? Pick up the word of God and allow it to be medicine for your soul. It is the scripture that guides us toward renewal. So ask yourself an honest question. You know the right question, the Sunday school question, and the answer to that question, and the Sunday school answer to that question, but the question is, will you give the true answer, the honest answer? And here's the question. Do you long to spend time alone with God in his word? Do you long to spend time with God where you're not just reading God's word to check off your Bible through your box, but where you're reading, studying, and meditating on God's word, wanting him to, to actually filter the things you're reading in your heart and to teach you and to strengthen you? Are you eager to place yourself under God's word knowing that day by day God is guiding and teaching you through his word? A second question here is this. Do you eagerly gather for church so that God can speak to you through the preached word? And I know you're saying, well, I'm here, Pastor Rod. I know, but, but do, you, do you eagerly do that in a way that you're saying, okay, Lord, I'm here. Give me what you got. I don't know what it is yet, 
Pastor hasn't told me what it is yet. I can read ahead and try and figure it out. But Lord, give me what you've got. Because when you give me what you've got, I know it's for my good. And you are seeking to shape and to mold me to be more and more like your son. Friends, this is why in the book of Hebrews, we find this wonderful truth. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. In other words, the word of God penetrates into our souls and does its work. Is that what you want? Is that what you long for? It's the Word of God, friends. It's the Scriptures that guide us. Secondly, the second dynamic here of God's providence, in God's providence, it's the Scripture that's driving history. Secondly, in God's providence, we have these stirrings that move us. God stirred the heart of Cyrus, the pagan king. And in verse 5, we find that God stirs the hearts or the spirits of some of uh, the Israelites in Babylon. Look at verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. All right, heads of tribes, priests and Levites, he stirred up others all to go rebuild the temple. Now, we don't want to get mystical here. God doesn't speak audibly today apart from his word, but he does place stirrings in our hearts. We use words like promptings or burdens, but we must not make the mistake of allowing guilt trips or emotional responses to manipulative appeals to somehow replace what is a truly God-ordained activity in our heart. No, what we have here is a divine moving of the heart. Everyone whose spirit God has stirred to go and rebuild. These people were compelled in their spirit to answer the call to go. Now, it would be a mistake to add to the scriptures and say that they, these people had some kind of a spiritual experience or something mystical. But what we can conclude is that God is at work in the hearts of these people in such a way that they now have a passion to return to Jerusalem to help the project of building the temple. Something in them is rising up. This passion, this desire, this eagerness, where did that come from? It came from the stirring of the Lord. Now, friends, the people of Israel are given an opportunity because of the proclamation of Cyrus to either go and build or to remain and stay. There's no neutral ground here. Both groups are part of God's plan for Israel. Both will have to sacrifice in some way. So let's first of all look at some who are stirred to go. Now let's be clear about this. They're not going to Disneyland. They're not going to Hawaii. I think when I was in youth ministry and we were going to put a, you know, a mission trip together, all those people were like, oh, I want to go. I want to go. It's going to be great. Oh, we're going to have so much fun. And it's like, no, you're going to work. You're going to serve. And it may not be comfortable. 
And you may not like the bugs and the stickiness and all that kind of stuff. doesn't even compare to the struggle that these people went through. See, they're being stirred by God for a very long and difficult journey across the desert and back into Judah. And when they get there, they're going to find a city that is devastated whose walls are broken down, the houses are rubble, the temple is destroyed, and the people are struggling. This will not be a journey to end up at Club Med. This will be a sacrificial journey. And friends, we might have in our thinking that the Jews in exile in Babylon were living as enslaved people under Babylonian rule, and certainly they were under Babylonian rule, but it doesn't compare to what the children of Israel were experiencing in Egypt. They were not enslaved that way, as if they were desperate to return back to Jerusalem. But the biblical data, as well as archaeological records, tells us something completely different. See, the prophet Jeremiah encouraged the Jews, Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, that when they were taken captive, they should build houses, plant gardens, take wives, have sons and daughters, and seek the peace of the city that I placed you in. In fact, the Jews in the Babylonian, uh, uh, that era, refused to conform to this pressure to, to take on the culture of Babylon, but still they were allowed to settle in towns and villages along the Chibar River, and to live together in communities, farm the land, and earn an income. And during those 70 years, many Jews became wealthy Jews. And I don't think it's an understatement to say that except for God stirring the Spirit, they would have remained in Babylon. I want you to think about this. They were comfortable. They were settled. It's been 70 years. It's three and a half generations, using the typical number of 20 years of the generation. Think of how many people knew nothing of Jerusalem except for what their parents and grandparents told them about it. Why would you want to go back there? We have it all here. We're in Babylon. I mean, this is the greatest city. We have this wonderful place to live. Yeah, we're still under the control of our overlords, but Look, we're, we're, we're living a land, off the land where our, our families are growing. Why would we want to go back? Well, the reason you want to go back is because God stirred your hearts. I remember when I was in my teens and wrestling with God's call on my life for gospel ministry to serve as a pastor, that I had a heart-to-heart with my father. He was worked for British Airways for 36 years, but then stepped into ministry after that. And he wanted me to see that being called to gospel ministry is not about power. It's not about being popular. It's not about, um, you know, just uh, enjoying myself and that it would be all this wonderful, great thing. No, he said that it was about serving the Lord no matter the circumstances or how people might treat you and that being a pastor means that you will have a target on your back. I needed to hear that. The Lord was stirring something up in my heart, but I wanted to test that stirring with godly wisdom. Someone that would say, that speak the truth. That's what dads do, hopefully. And he did. 
And so it was good for me to have those stirrings in my heart tested by godly wisdom, to come face to face with the reality of the difficulty of the task and to be resigned to honor the Lord in spite of what might lie ahead. But friends, some people can choose to go for all the wrong reasons, right? Pride, excitement, materialism, control. Many people can be compelled to go for other reasons, to please others. Maybe out of fear, maybe out of guilt. Others, however, are not concerned about those things. For them, the stirring in the heart is a divine compulsion. It is a burden, it's a prompting that moves them to serve God where he is placing them. My friends, you may have been stirred in your heart. And we see this all the time in our church. There's a particular need that goes out. Maybe it's a food train and you sign up. Why are you doing it? You're doing it out of guilt? Or are you doing it because there's something in you that God has placed there because you're walking with him that says, you should do this. You're part of the body of Christ. This is your family. And so you're like, yeah, I'm going to do this. This is natural for me. So you might be stirred in your heart to, to, to serve someone by helping them with your talents or to give money to an individual, a family, or a cause to give your time and energy as a volunteer. So some are stirred to go. Others, however, are resigned to stay. And we have to see this because what we need to recognize is that the people who are going are not necessarily always the heroes. It says in verse 6, And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. So friends, those who are after hearing of the need and the opportunity and maybe after much prayer are convinced that God isn't stirring them to go, they determine, however, how they can help those who are going. Now, there might be all sorts of bad reasons why someone decides not to go. Apathy, fear, comfort, selfishness, but there are also some very honorable reasons. You're pregnant, Right? I mean, you may not manage the journey if that's the case, right? You're old, you're sick, you have responsibilities here. So this call was not a call for everyone to go, but it was a call for a remnant of the remnant to go. Okay? And if you went, you sacrificed. If you stayed, you also sacrificed, right? Because you then well were, were responsible to give all these support resources to the people who are going. Money, tools, pots and pans, clothing, blankets, animals of burden, animals for providing milk, animals for food. They're suffering loss. And just imagine if this was actually happening to us today. And some people say, we're, we're going to go. Well, did this result in families not seeing relatives ever again? That's a sacrifice. Was there now an immediate shortage of workers in the farms or in the fields? It's a sacrifice. Go. We'll manage. Our God will take care of us. The point, friends, is that God stirs, stirs some to go, 
or to do or to join or to participate, and some are resigned not to go, both, uh, but both sacrifice in their own way. Now, we can obviously think about that in terms of the church and how we function together and things that come up. You know, just because someone is not stirred to be involved in a particular ministry doesn't mean that they don't care about that particular ministry. And just because you have a passion for something doesn't mean that everyone else has to have that same passion or that they're ungodly because they don't have the same passion as you. Got to be careful there. Now, just a couple of practical applications here on this. Number one, be aware of extremes. I put a chart up here. I just kind of sat down. I thought, okay, we have this thing going on where where God does things in us. He stirs things in us. Sometimes we, we, we can, in a sense, sense that that's happening. Sometimes the stirring happens and we don't even know it. I think that's what happened with Cyrus. God stirred his heart. Cyrus had no clue that God was doing that. And probably these people, they were stirred, but they may not have had a clue as to why this was happening, why this was there, except that God was doing it. Now, we do get burdened for certain things. And we should. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit um, to, to, be, you know, to be compassionate and considerate. Um, but here are the extremes. Uh, on, on one side, this, this whole thing of fluidity, right? Feelings only, oh, man, I just, I just feel this is what God wants me to do, and it's kind of happening in a moment, right? Sensational, it's guilt-driven maybe, it's manipulation that's, that's actually... Uh, making this happen. You have the other side that is, so in other words, just, oh yeah, these things are always happening. You got to do this, got to go, right? On the other side, you have this rigidity. It's, it's logical, it's duty, it's a literal word, it's cold. I never stirred up, you know, to, to do anything, so to speak. Right? Two extremes. And what we need, I think, is this, this balance in the middle here that I would call biblical wisdom. Let's just say God is stirring up for a particular ministry. That, the fact that you're being stirred up doesn't necessarily mean that the rest of the church has to be involved in that. Okay. Or maybe you're stirred, you're stirred up, you know, God's calling me now to move to Idaho or to Florida or something like that. All right. You, you're like, right, somehow this is, this is what's driving me. Well, you need to test the spirits. You need to pray. You need to open up the word and, 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 and be bathed by it. You need to consult leaders that God has put there to help you sort through these things and not just to, to rush off and, and they're there to protect you from manipulation or false guilt and things like that. Now, if someone comes to you and says, I've determined that it's God's will for me to do X, Y, and Z, be ready to ask a lot of questions. Because in my experience, when some people say, it was God's will for me to do X, Y, Z. It's actually a code word for this is what I wanted to do, but I'm couching it in spiritual terms to make myself feel good about what I want and to stop you from trying to tell me otherwise because you can't argue with God and his will. It's like a trump card. Well, why are you doing this? What's well, God's will? Well, let's talk a little bit about that. And clearly, if this is what usually happens. These people have come to these conclusions by themselves without the help and the resource of godly people around them. So if you sense a stirring in your spirit about some kind of ministry or a change in your life, be sure that you're following this path of wisdom, right? 
testing the spirits, prayer, scripture, consulting leaders. I just throw this out as a caution. We want to recognize that there can be burdens, promptings, things that God is working you, but sometimes those burdens and promptings are not God at work. There are other things that are at work, and you've got to be able to sift through that to figure out what it is. All right? You guys all with me there? Okay. A couple of you are. That's good. All right. Number two, um, we experience this in our own Christian walk, right? Our salvation is the Lord that stirs our heart to believe. If you think that you came to faith on your own, you're not reading your word. It's God that stirs something in us to receive what he is giving us. He stirs our hearts. When it comes to sanctification, Philippians 2.12, it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is at work in us. There's this stirring. There's these things that are happening in us. Then when it comes to service, the question is, should I, should I do this? Should I do this? Should I serve in the band? Should I serve in you know, children's ministry? Should I serve by you know, cooking food or whatever? And, and, and God might put, kind of might want to say a spiritual nudge in there. I want to be careful here, but he puts thoughts in our minds that are formed out of our understanding of Scripture. We're not bypassing it. We're saying, look, this is a responsibility that God has given me as being part of the body of Christ. Therefore, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z. This is part of our service. God's stirrings move us toward renewal. The Word of God guides us. The stirrings of God, they move us. Here's the third thing. The signs that strengthen us. Now, when you read verses 7 through 11, you might just think that this is just an ordinary inventory, something to skip over, nothing to see here, really, but not so fast. According to Daniel 1, 1 and 2, 5, 2 through 4, and 22 through 23 of chapter 5 of Daniel, these are the items taken by the Babylonians when they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and they had placed them in the treasury of the god, little j, of Babylon, or gods, I should say. Just listen to Daniel 1, 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, which is Babylon, to the house of his God, little g, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Can you imagine the headlines of the new newspapers of that day. Murdoch and Bell defeat Yahweh, the God of Israel. The vessels of Solomon's temple taken into the house of Babylon's gods. And they sang songs like, Praise Murdoch from whom all blessings flow. This was a, this was a, a very dark day and the history of Israel. You see, 
the logical pagan thinking of the day was this. The defeat of a nation was attributed to the weakness of the defeated nation's God. The victory of an, uh, over a nation was attributed to the strength of the victor's God. So when the spoils of war are taken to Babylon, it was a strong statement by the Babylonians that their gods were superior. And they would toast their gods, Murdoch and Bel, and offer praise and sacrifice to their gods. And these spoils of the temple would become trophies of their victory and the superiority of their gods. But then King Cyrus, the servant of the Lord, shows up. And the Babylonian king receives Yahweh's judgment just as he had promised. See, friends, we serve a God of the impossible. Even though God had prophesied that he would restore Israel, it looked and felt impossible. We're in exile in Babylon, a super power in the region. Our city has been destroyed along with this temple. How in the world is it going to happen that we would go back? There's rubble and, and, and there's a remnant that's there at the city. They're, they're nothing. Even if we wanted to go, how would we as a people ever be able to return to the city of our forefathers? It's so far away. We don't have the resources. It's impossible. Have you ever said something like that about a circumstance that you're going through? I just don't see how in the world this can happen. But friends, God makes impossible things happen, doesn't he? He stirs the heart of Cyrus. He makes a proclamation for the people to return, to return even the artifacts taken from the temple. Again, listen to the words of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 27, 21, and 22. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah, and in Jerusalem. They shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. Pretty clear, isn't it? Friends, what is it that you are facing that seems impossible? Infertility? Steady job that pays the bills? A stubborn sickness or a physical ailment? A particular sinful temptation or struggle? A difficult coworker or boss at work? A wayward child? living through the loss of a loved one, a marriage that's gone sour, a financial portfolio that went belly up, go on. Remember, God can make seemingly impossible things happen. We can't see it. God can. If that's his will, he can bring it about. He's the God of the impossible. Secondly, he's the God of signs. I want you to notice here the careful details given about the counting 
and the inventory and the distribution of the vessels. Again, why? Why so much detail here? Notice verse 8, Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Prince there means kind of, he was a ruler. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 cents. All these details, counting, recording, counting, recording. And we'll find when they get back to Jerusalem, they take an inventory of what was counted on the other end. <laughs> Why so much detail? I mean, you think about it, that's just a lot of detail. It's like, look, I conquered you, just go back, take your vessels. No, he's counting them. Why is it important that we are, are given how many basins of bowls and vessels and gold and silver? What is God looking to show us? He's saying, friends, with each vessel counted, I have taken care of Babylon. But the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel, endures. Here's a gold vessel. Babylon's gone. Yahweh remains. Here's a silver vessel. Babylon's been destroyed. There's still hope for Israel. You see this. Each one of them is like, it's just a hammer again, a hammer again, that God is faithful to his people. There's signs of God's promises. There's signs of God's faithfulness. There's signs given to Israel to encourage and strengthen them for what God had called them to. Not only were they liberated to go, but they're liberated to go with the very vessels that were taken away from the temple. Oh, Babylon thought it was great. But Babylon was still just a pawn in the hand of the mighty God of Israel to preserve those vessels so that they, 70 years later, could return with them and to rebuild the temple. What are some signs that God uses to encourage us today? By signs, I don't want you to think about, you know, Jesus turning water into wine. I'm not talking about that. We're talking about ordinary signs that God just continues to, to give us, to show us, and to, to give us strength and to give us hope. Let me just walk through a few of them. The Lord's Supper. Sign there is Christ's death and his sacrifice for us. Baptism, this, this whole dynamic of new life. He's every time we see a baptism, we are forced to be thankful for what God has done in us in giving us new life. The marriage ceremony, if it's done well and rightly, proclaims our union with Christ. It's a sign. It's a sign to encourage us. A funeral is a sign to give us hope that heaven's a reality and also of the Lord's return. Answers to prayer are a sign of God's ongoing provision and care for his people. He genuinely cares and he ministers and he answers those prayer requests. Testimonies of people are reminders of God's sovereignty and providence. I don't know about you, but you know, maybe when you're out with some of the people that here, maybe when we go to the park together, ask someone, why don't you share how God brought you to himself? You might find that to be very encouraging and strengthening. 
footprints. These are signs. And these are signs, I would say, that are actively built. Sometimes there are things that are happening in your life, and you're like, I couldn't believe how God worked out this and this and this together. Who could have done that except for God? Who could have connected dots except for God? These are all signs given to us to encourage us. So throughout the life of God's church, he uses signs, tokens, reminders that he is still at work in us and through us. Now, as you know, last Sunday at 4 p.m., the Lord took our beloved Scott Anoni home to be with him in heaven. And all of us who knew him here at Gateway walk with him on this journey. I mean, from a distance, some of us were more intimate and stuff like that, but he was always very transparent about what he was going through. And he would always model for us a desire to lean into Christ in the midst of that suffering. And he would say things like this to me, Pastor, I just want to glorify God with this trial that he has given me. Pastor, I know that he has a purpose in all this. I don't know exactly what it is, but I know he does. He's a good God, and I want to face this trial in a way that glorifies him. And then when interacting with Lady, usually while Scott was there, asking the question, you know, how are you going to do? How are things happening? Or, you know, are you going to be okay? Her response was always, we're just going to go keep on trusting the Lord. He will take care of us. He has always taken care of us. <laughs> and friends, if we're honest, the kind of trial and suffering that Scott and Lady and their family have gone through with Scott's cancer has been a glorious sign to each of us. As a result, we see Christ better. We look at our struggles differently. We see that heaven and being with Christ is more glorious than we can imagine. We rest more assuredly in our wise and sovereign God. And it's because it has been modeled for us as a sign that we should keep our focus on him, that we should lean into him, that we should seek to glorify him. And friends, God wants us to see the signs that strengthen us. And every time one of these vessels came through in this accounting, it was a sign. God is at work. God is faithful. God cares for his people. God is going to be glorified. It's a sign. So friends, God uses his word, he uses these stirrings, and he uses signs as, as mechanisms of his providence to move us toward renewal, to get us to the place where we're being restored and growing in him. So what are some areas in your spiritual life right now that need renewal? Maybe the cultivation of your marriage. Maybe the, a God-centeredness in your parenting. Maybe the using of your gifts for gospel ministry. Maybe giving your financial resources for the furtherance of the kingdom. But what about serving your church where there's a need? Maybe your obedience to something God has been stirring you about. My friends, I don't know about you. If I picked up my phone today, there's a little red notification saying that I need 
to update my phone. You guys get that? Sometimes I ignore them for a season. Some of you I know absolutely hate them and refuse to process the updates out of fear that somehow it's going to cause your phone to you know, self-destruct or something like that. But often they are updates to the operating system that root out bugs and problems and viruses that they've been alerted to. And when they're ignored, your phone becomes groggy and behaves strangely. It's not that you need to get a new phone, but you need to have your phone renewed by the update. In the same way, friends, we need periodically spiritual updates or times of spiritual renewal where God roots out the sinful bugs in our hearts and restores us back into right fellowship with him. Now, friends, I'm not necessarily talking about some big, huge sin that you committed and you fell flat on your face. That is true. Those are times when we need renewal. But I'm talking about the the little nuances of the heart where you've wandered away, where you've kind of stiff-armed God, where you've brushed him aside, and he's saying, no, 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 be renewed. Restore this thing in your Christian walk that that I want you to, to have so that you can continue to grow where God renews a right spirit within us, where God renews our strength, where God transforms us by the renewing of our minds. Lord, help us today. Help us to be mindful that in your providence, you are at work through your word. And as we interact with your word, we are being worked on by you in our very inner being so that we are thinking about things and making choices about things or burdened about things. And that through our walk with you, we're constantly running into signs, reminders, opportunities where we can see that you're encouraging us wanting us to see that you are present, wanting us to see that you are at work, wanting us to see uh, just the beauty of what it means to walk with you. Thank you, Lord, for what you do, how you walk with us, how you walk before us, how you move among us. Lord, may we be a people who are eager to place ourselves joyfully in your providential care, to be renewed day by day. We ask this in your name. Amen.